welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's reading is from Jeremiah chapter 12. Righteous are you, O Yahweh, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Yahweh, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest, She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert destroyers have come, for the sword of Yahweh devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as Yahweh lives." Even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. So we begin with more of Jeremiah's speech, and it quickly shifts in verse 5. The rest of the text is Yahweh speaking instead. And so as we begin with Jeremiah, these are words that are just as true for us today as they were for him. So righteous are you, O Yahweh, when I complain to you. How many of us have ever complained to God? How many of us have grumbled to God? And sometimes it's legitimate stuff that we're grumbling about, but usually it's not. Nonetheless, whatever the case is when we pray to God, he is right. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is just. He is good. And so Jeremiah, noting that even his own prayers may not be perfect here, but he's going he's gonna to pray anyway. 
So even though he is not righteous, he is going to lift up his prayers to the one who is. Let me plead my case before you. So there's a lesson in prayer there for us as well, that we can also bring our prayers before the Lord, who is righteous. And because he is righteous, he will hear us. So what does he pray? Well, I think he prays a prayer that most of us might be willing to join ourselves to. Say amen at the end of. When you do that, you're joining yourself to the prayer. So you gather in church together and your pastor prays, and then at the end of the prayer you say amen, means that you are also joining yourself to that prayer. You're saying that, that is your prayer too. I think we can do that with verse 1, can't we? Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Amen to what Jeremiah just said. When we look around us, we see the same thing. We see the wicked faring well, while those who trust in the Lord often don't. And there are many things behind that, many things we could discuss, like the work of the devil and how the devil has every incentive to keep the, the proud prideful and why the devil is attacking the Christian. And we could talk about different ways that the Lord works, but it's a dangerous question to dig too much into because it seeks after the hidden things of God. We do not specifically know why he might let one wicked person have their way in this world. You, know, you think of the billionaires who can do whatever they want, whereas another wicked person is pretty lost and perishing here. We don't know why the Lord works in various ways with different people, but he does. Because the Lord knows the heart. He knows either the things that it will take to call a person to repentance, or he sees that great pride in them and he, he gives them the desires of their wicked heart. He gives them over to their destruction. We just, we don't know all things. And so it's a dangerous one. We can plead our case before Yahweh, but we have to remember that he is righteous. He is right. So Jeremiah continues, you plant them, they take root, they grow, they produce fruit. And this is true. God has given even the wicked in this world. God provides even for the wicked in this world because they are his creation, just as much as you and I are. And he loves them. He provides for them. You are near in their mouth, far from their heart. The far from their heart is a lack of faith. The near in their heart seems to be a false faith. So this is Jeremiah referring to the wicked people of Judah all around him. He's identifying they speak God's name, just as God has a few times mentioned in this, in this book so far. They're willing to say the name of Yahweh, but they don't actually believe in him. He's become to them just one of multiple, multiple false gods, multiple idols that they worship. But you, O Yahweh, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. So Jeremiah invites the Lord to look at his heart and to know, which he already knows that the Lord knows. It's a lot of knows. He knows that Jeremiah is faithful, that Jeremiah trusts in him. And again, I'm going to point out here with verse 3 especially how different Jeremiah is from where this book started. The book started with Jeremiah being selected by God from the midst of the people the rebellious people. 
And there's no mention of him being selected because he is somehow better or somehow more righteous, like when Noah gets selected um, instead of the rest of that generation, or why Mary was so highly favored that he chose her to be the one who would bear the Savior. There's nothing like that for Jeremiah. He is a son of a priest, and he's taken from the midst of the people. And so in chapter 4, Jeremiah challenges God. He accuses God of basically deceiving the people, that this is all God's fault. And so see how far he has come. Now instead, he, he prays for their destruction. So he has joined himself firmly to God's side, and he now prays against Judah, that the things that the Lord speaks would indeed come to pass. It's a, uh, just a, such a drastic change for this still young man at this point. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? It's like Revelation chapter 6. The question of the martyrs crying out from under the throne. How long? How long must we suffer? How long until the ones who destroyed us? How long until you take vengeance upon them? That, that's the kind of language of Revelation chapter 6. And it's, it's here as well. How long will creation suffer because of these people? Lord, how long will you allow this to continue? And indeed, that is the prayer of many Christians today as they suffer. Lord, how long will you leave me suffering like this? Lord, how long will you let the enemy have the upper hand? Lord, how long will you allow the devil to continue with his plot? Jeremiah acknowledges seeing creation suffering. He acknowledges that the words of the Lord are true. That is, he brings forth Babylon to destroy Judah. Even the birds and the beasts are going to be taken away from this creation as well. And so Jeremiah sees this. He acknowledges that this is not good. He also notices that it's because the people of Judah have said and that's the last words of Jeremiah's speech here in this chapter. He will not see our latter end. Now, we don't know who the he is. If this is God, then this is the people of Judah saying that God does not actually know their end. Yahweh does not know these things. He's just, just another of many gods, and his threat is empty, essentially is what that would be getting at. Or, if the he here is to be Jeremiah, then they're rejecting the words of the prophet, he, does, he will not see our latter end. Even if that were to come, even if it were to be bad for us, uh, Jeremiah is not going to live that long. Either because they kill him, or because any such destruction upon them is way off in the future. That could be the simple acknowledgement that any nation will fall eventually. So, maybe it will happen a few hundred years from now. Surely judgment won't come against us anytime soon. Those are the possible pictures in any way that you take it, whether they're talking about God or Jeremiah. It is a rejection of God's word. It's a rejection of his prophet. It's a rejection of his statement that he is going to bring destruction upon them because they have rejected him. Then Yahweh responds to him, and the response in verses 5 and 6 is directly answering Jeremiah. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? So there's the picture, right? You run against uh, another man or a group of men and you exhaust yourself trying to win that race 
whether you've won it or not. Next race is against a horse. What chance do you have? Jeremiah has been running with these Judaites, and they are wearing him out. God is pointing out to him there's a stronger enemy yet to come that is much more rejecting of God than Judah. A reference to Babylon. Their evils will be great, and Jeremiah is going to see these things. That's the picture of both both of those statements in verse 5. If in a safe land you are so trusting, what we do in the thicket of the Jordan? Um, so the safe land is a reference to Judah, even though, again, Judah is evil, Judah is about to be destroyed. The thicket of the Jordan, a reference to you know, the, the idea of the thicket, like a thistle or a thorn, you get caught in a thicket, so you're going to be snared in a trap. It's going to get harder. Even your brothers, the house of your father, have dealt treacherously with you. Do not believe them, They even if they speak false, friendly words to you. So God reminding Jeremiah that is Israel, Judah, not to be trusted here. Verse 7, then God goes into his own lament, if we want to phrase it that way. I have forsaken my house. That's a reference to both Israel and Judah, his people. I have abandoned my heritage. That would be the promised land as he's bringing destruction upon it to wipe this people off from it. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. That's a reference again to Judah, his people, and Jerusalem, the capital of that people. My heritage to me has become like a lion in the forest. That would be a a beast and a foe. If you think about a man walking in a forest, you see a lion and it roars at you. Yeah, that's the picture. Not a friend. She has lifted up her voice against me, so I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Again, put put yourself in that place. How would you like to be in a hyena's lair, surrounded by hyenas? Are the birds of prey against her all around? These are pictures of death. So assemble the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Verse 10, he gives us a bit of a mixed metaphor. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. Shepherds are to care for the flock, the people. He's talked about Judah as a vineyard before throughout the Old Testament. Um, So the shepherds here, okay, verses 10 through 13, I think you can look at two ways. Let me just start it that way. Are the shepherds Judah or are the shepherds Babylon? Let's quickly run through it with both cases. If this is Judah, then they have destroyed the land. They have not taken care of it. God made it as a good gift to them, but they have abandoned it, and they've made it desolate, and they don't care. No man lays it to heart. And so now, instead, upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. Bare heights would be no defense. Um, Instead of a fortified height, they built their city, Jerusalem, on a mountain, on a hill, to make it even more defensible. But it'll be like it's bare, like there's nothing to stop the destroyer from coming. And so God devours. The destruction comes. No one escapes from one end of the land to the other. Or is it is the shepherd Babylon? We've had that reference before in the text. In chapter 6, verse 3, shepherds gathering their flocks around the city of Jerusalem was a picture of the invading armies and their military commanders. So the, the flocks are the, the soldiers and, and whatnot that come in to de- destroy so they devour and destroy the land if it's those 
So verse 10 is then the, the armies of Babylon coming to destroy his vineyard. And they have made it a waste, and they don't care. That's going to get into what we read in verse 17 down in a little bit. They would then be the same as the ones in verse 12 who are the destroyers that bring that destruction into the land that no one escapes. So you can kind of see that either direction. I'm not sure which one we should take it as. Verse 12, as we look at that though, no flesh has peace. No one escapes. I would encourage you here to begin the conversation with your kids. Ask them if they can remember what Jesus said to his disciples when they were locked up together in a room after Good Friday. So Jesus appears to them. I believe it's on Easter Sunday. And the first thing he says, peace be with you. He says it again before he leaves. And then on the eighth day when he comes back, he says it to them again when they're locked in the house together again. Peace be with you. Because that's what Jesus comes to bring. He brings peace to the world because he takes our sins away. There is no peace here in verse 12 because of their sin. But we have the peace of Christ as he reconciles God and man. He restores us to each other. Verse 13 very much so connects to the curse. They have sown wheat, they have reaped thorns. Think of Genesis chapter 3, how the work of man becomes harder. In this case, though, it's because God has removed his favor from upon them. Even more so. I guess Genesis 3 would match that description too, but now he's removed it because of their unbelief, their rejection of him. Verses 14 through 17 bring up an idea of restoration. So it's a warning, actually, to the enemy. It's a warning to Babylon and to any others. There are other nations that are judged for this, this very paragraph. God warns any evil neighbor, notice that evil neighbor word, evil, any neighbor who's around them that sees this destruction and tries to gain the promised land, God is going to restore this people. He's going to bring them back. So this is a warning that if you want if you want to sit in the promised land, God's going to take it away from you. This is not yours. It has not been given to you. So God then says he will pluck up them, the people from their land. So he's going to he's going to destroy Judah. But after he's plucked them up, verse 15, he will have compassion on them. So he's mentioning the restoration that's going to come. He's going to bring them home to their heritage, to their land. And that's a reference to Cyrus, the king of Persia in 538 BC, who overthrows Babylon and sends the Jews home and even pays to help rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. They will be his people. They will swear by his name. Yahweh lives, so he is a living God. In comparison, contrast all the false idols that they had been worshiping. And so he will build them up as his people again. But if any nation will not listen, verse 17, he will pluck that nation up and destroy it. So God's judgment will turn also on the other nations, the bordering kingdoms. Another question possibly to talk about with children. So God uses Babylon to judge Judah. He'll use the army, bring it in to destroy the Jew, Judaites for not trusting him. But did the Babylonians trust in God? The answer to that's no. And because they didn't trust in God, what did he ultimately do to them? 
It ends up being similar to what he did to Judah. He used Cyrus of Persia to destroy Babylon. And because the Persians didn't believe in him, he used Greece to destroy them. And because they didn't believe in him, he used Rome to destroy them. Because they didn't believe, he used the, I believe at that point you're talking about the Germanic tribes from the north, the barbarians from the north that come in and destroy. Ongoing, this, this pattern. The Lord uses one wicked nation to judge another because that's all there is in this world is wicked nations. Apart from Christ, there is no peace. But in Christ, our flesh has peace. 